We all have to realize that none of us are perfect. We all fuck up. We're all going to make a billion mistakes. And that doesn't mean that we aren't worthy of love. We're all worthy of love and we're all learning. And you have to start with that in order to make any meaningful progress. Welcome to Noah Kagan Presents. What up, party people? It's your boy, Falafel, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I have Aubrey Marcus, the founder of Onnit.com. It's a total human optimization company. And this is a two-part series. In part one, we actually talk about solely personal improvement, Aubrey doing a bunch of drugs, having an open relationship with Miss USA, his new fiance, Whitney Miller, uh, how he lost his virginity and the pressures of porn, his dad creating the fleshlight. And it was a, a part of the episode that I wasn't planning on sharing, but it was so good that you forced me to give it to you. Next week, I've got part two coming out, which talks about the business side of Aubrey, which is how he created a $28 million company, partnering with Joe Rogan and a bunch more. Enjoy. I believe your stepfather created a fleshlight. Yes. True? True. What's the story with that? My mother got pregnant with twin girls at age 40. And the doctor told my stepfather, who was, you know, he was a SWAT team squad leader, but always kind of an inventor by nature. And was like, look, um, because it's twins, because uh, your wife is kind of advanced in age, you know, at about month three or four, I recommend you guys stop having sex. And so he's looking at like a six month stint where he's got no options yeah. other than old hand. And he, and he was like, all right, well, look, let me see if I can innovate and figure out what else is out there just to have a little variety, you know, cause he's, um, a very moral guy and, you know, and so he, he didn't have the traditional option just to go fuck somebody else. So he's, so he really started looking around and everything was just shit. It was just junk out there in the market. So he decided to invent something and he, got in and kind of found a, a mineral oil gel composition that made sense. And the first idea was to make these like bodies, kind of like these half torso things. And then he, so he was rocking that for a little while, but then he realized that when he was trying to give them away to friends, cause nobody was buying them at first, he just kind of testing it out. Everybody just wanted the removable insert part, like just the pussy part that you take out to wash. And then and that was the light bulb moment where he's like, oh, wait, nobody wants the whole body. They just want the pussy part. Yeah. So then he put it into discreet little housing and um, the fleshlight was born. So how did he actually get the word out? How did he actually get people to find out about a fleshlight? Originally it was distributors and then from... What do you mean? Like he hit up like local stores? Like and stores all. and stuff like that. He was distributing to porn shops. But then from there it was, you know, the online porn revolution you know yeah. he just saddled up to that i mean there's not a lot of companies that are monetizing or at least at that point were monetizing that traffic and so you know the fleshlight just started throwing up ads and affiliates started throwing up ads and um you have tons of people billions of people watching porn and not a lot of companies advertising so it's a very uh lucrative space you know to actually start making some money monetizing traffic i mean cpms for porn traffic are or at least were back then and probably it's a lot you know more arbitraged out now but super cheap hmm. you know what, what was your experience with it like like what was that like growing up as a kid we don't come from like a religious family where sex was ever anything kind of taboo we was very practical about it so other than the awkwardness of my mother getting in, involved in occasional conversations about sex, which I think is awkward for any kid, um, it was fairly normal. You know, it was just like became part of the fabric and the laughs of the of the family. Did you guys like all use them and then talk about it at dinner? 
Like, <laughs> everybody go use your flashlights now. <laughs> no dinner till you flash. No, I mean, yeah, all the, I have three older brothers, three older stepbrothers, and we all were part of the sample group trying different <laughs> things out. And, and, uh, is that weird to tell your dad? Like, oh, uh, you know, the pussy's a little too loose for me or something like that. Like, your mom's listening to this. Like, I never told him that. You know what I'm saying? That wasn't my role, Noah. I was saying this thing's too tight, dog. I can't even get inside, Dad. No, I mean, like a little bit, but I don't know. You just kind of get over it. When it becomes part of the conversation and everybody's kind of laughing about it anyways, then it becomes normal and it becomes no longer, you know, no longer anything that's uncomfortable. I think that's a really great point. Yeah. Just like a lot of the times the things that are taboo, just bring it up and then it's like becomes more comfortable and you actually get to explore deeper topics, which we'll get into later in the show. You know, one thing you got me thinking about, did your parents ever do birds and the bees talk or like the dick and the pussy talk? Yeah. I guess is what they yeah. call it nowadays. My parents never did. And I'm always like, I wondered if everybody else got that too. Yeah, they did. But you know, it's, it's still very limited, you know, as far as how that's concerned. And I think that's a major problem because right now, everybody who has internet access, which is pretty much every kid past 12 that I know, they have an iPhone or some kind of smartphone, their parents keep in touch with them on and they play games on and iPads, whatever. They're watching hardcore porn. Like note to parents out there, your children are watching hardcore porn. So your options are either let them learn from watching double anal videos or maybe have a sensible conversation about, you know, sex. Cause it's crazy. It's like trying to become a great fighter watching only world star hip hop. Like, how are you going to become a good lover just watching porn? You know, like you can't, like there has to be some element where some sensible, you know, idea of how this thing can go on the other side. I'm not saying porn is the devil and don't ever watch. I'm saying we just have to accommodate for reality. And reality is we live in a porn universe. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's crazy accessible. Crazy accessible. The, uh, well, what was the first time you lost your virginity? I was 16. Did you use a flashlight with the girl at all or like? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I mean, I have tried that. I've integrated that, but it's like. Why would you do that if you had the real thing right exactly. there? Exactly. Yeah. It's not yeah. really. Why well, use a microwave? You can have an oven. Um, <laughs> well, so microwave's faster. <laughs> True, <laughs> but I guess the quality. That, yeah, maybe that's I not as good. I the microwave in an oven. I use the microwave all the fucking time. <laughs> I think about that with dildos sometimes because like if I'm ever with a, a female of sorts, <laughs> dildos or vibrators are really nice because it kind of like microwaves it, it accelerates things that you want to have happen right. so i do i always think of it in that that fashion obviously for our uh my thousands and millions of women listeners so you, you were talking about your first experience first experience was awful i mean just trying to figure out how to to use a condom with the pressure of it being your first experience is just a real recipe for was a recipe for disaster for me so i think first one was a total fail and then eventually we kind of got it together and figured it out and took a little pressure off myself that was always the problem for me is you know whether it was sports or academics or whatever or sex is me just putting too much fucking pressure on myself so until i kind of grew up a little bit and stopped putting all that pressure on myself that's when i really started enjoying sex the most what do you mean well when you have performance pressure like you have this idea like i had these three older brothers who were always telling tall tales like they were fucking you know the gods of the bedroom right you know and so i believe like that's what i had to live up to and you know, being a very cerebral kid and, you know, I would basically mind fuck myself before sex and try and, you know, have these expectations of what I was supposed to be able to do that, you know, would really take me out of the enjoyment of the moment. So that was like, that was probably the biggest thing, you know, holding me back at that point was just getting out of my head because sex isn't fun when you're in your head. It's much better when you're in your body. I read something recently. If you take the time during sex to please yourself, 
it'll help you actually please the other person afterwards. Right. Like, so I think a lot of the times, I don't know, maybe for you, it's different, but for me, I'm like so focused on just trying to get the finish line for them. Yeah. Right. And actually removing that pressure and just being like, let me enjoy this moment together with this person really changed like kind of the dynamics when I have sex. And I think a broader definition of sex, I think we have a far too narrow definition. Like a sex is, is an exchange of energy connection as well as like the friction element that's the actual you know penis in vagina part of it like sex is that whole experience and so it's not dependent on just the penetration it's dependent on the whole thing that you create that whole thing that you can weave which can you know if you're doing it in a conscious way can access all different types of different brain states entering flow state during sex or transient hypofrontality where you're removing some of that kind of cerebral focus element of your brain and just literally getting out of your head fucking your brains out you know when you're not thinking about anything it's just sensation and moving and what they call like the deep now that moment of richness of experience that's happening when you're just totally enthralled in that moment and i think having really kind of tangible conversations about what's going on in the brain what's going on in the body what sex is without all of these taboos and this inability to talk I mean, I think that's going to create a really liberated human that's able to enjoy this experience instead of it having be this thing that's, you know, pleasurable, but also bound in thorns, as, you know, William Blake would say, you know, and, and, and just have it be a healthy, fun part of life where it should be. Yeah. My ex used to think of it like hugging. So she, she liked hugging a lot of people is what she said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. The, uh, have you read a lot of David Data stuff? Mm-hmm. I went to his sex workshop Mm -hmm. about three years ago. I wasn't feeling sexual and there's a lot of different exercises, but the one that you got me reflecting on when I thought was really powerful was literally, it was like me and the the woman uh, or man on man, whatever it is, you just sit and stare at each other. And then uh, the woman put her hand in my hands. And I did this with a a friend of mine as an activity, maybe this like four or five years ago. And I just remember we stared at each other and it was fucking so hot. Yeah. I just remember being like, I cannot believe just staring at someone else, which we don't really do that often, especially right. with your partner. You kind of like, you know, you kind of look at them, you look away, you're distracted, you're thinking about dinner, but actually just that total connectedness with not actually even physical touch, not even really like nakedness or anything like that. And I remember like, wow, this is really different and how special that felt. That's sex, right? It's just a different form of sex. It's an exchange of consciousness at that level that I think broadening that definition makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it can happen on the dance floor. It can happen in a variety of different places where you just lock in with somebody and share that mutual experience. And I think in that regard, I think it really opens up a whole different other idea. And I I think also part of the problem is there's, you know, so many rules around monogamy and these different things that if you broaden the definition of sex, then everybody's cheating and then everybody's jealous about everything. So that that can become a sticky issue that for some people with the current rule system. Yeah. It seems like you break a lot of rules with this, like just with like psychedelics and then with sex and even monogamy. I know that's something we've talked in the past that you weren't really doing that. I'm not doing that. No, I'm in an open relationship. I just got engaged to Whitney, but we're fully committed to an open partnership. So how do you, how do you even approach that? I was, I was wondering about that. Well, it's hell to go through, first of all, because it, you know, you're programmed with all of these models that say that if your partner wants somebody else, that means that you're deficient. So your ego feels really threatened and challenged the moment that your partner has interest, let alone acts upon that interest with somebody. It, it totally puts you through this hellish state of ego reevaluation and who you are as a man or a woman and your identity, but it's all bullshit. You know, like if you opened up a restaurant 
and your friends didn't eat there every night, would you be all fucked up and be like, I can't fucking believe you didn't eat at my restaurant every single, how dare you want Chinese food on Wednesday when I have, you know, the best steak in town? Like, no, we understand that we have appetites of varied, a varied source and you can have a favorite restaurant, but still want to eat somewhere else. Like, and, and, but for sex, for some reason, we've been told this story and internalized the story that nope, one supplier is perfectly all you need you have your sex dealer and that's your one person dealer and that's and that's the only person you can get it from and it's just silly in in my eyes but i understand you know i understand where it comes from and i understand how difficult it was for me even knowing cognitively that it was silly like it was hell for two and a half years transitioning out of this you know as whitney had interest and had other lovers man it's hell and it was hell for her too but on the other side is bliss it's freedom it's non-restriction it's you know, what are, what do we have to fight about when all we're doing is rooting for each other's highest pleasure? You said it took two and a half years and then finally you guys, you got out of hell. Mm-hmm. One story you got me reflecting on now is I remember we were working out last time and you told me how she was dating someone who was a football player or some mm-hmm. like pro athlete who is wealthier than you, yeah. like more ripped than you, more money than you. And I, I remember you were kind of explaining how you got through that. The initial thing is, so you start to comp- you play the comparison game. Yeah. You start looking at the attributes of who your lover is seeing and saying like, oh, I'm going to, I got to be better than them and that. Well, you know, I actually, it was actually fortunate for me that the lover she was choosing had certain things that I could just never compete with. Cause then, cause my initial instinct, you know, I'm, I'm fairly good at a lot of things is I could, if it was somebody who was close, maybe I could play that game for longer and I could try and show her like, yeah, you're with him. Well, he's like a JV version of me because look what I can do, you know, which is the classically what the ego does. The ego's threatened and it tries to assert dominance, you know, so I'm better than you, blah, blah, blah. Totally. But because, you know, the people that she was choosing were exceptional and I couldn't do that, I had to sit with it in a different way and then realize like, all right, well, I'll never be that. Well, there must be something about me that is unique and also equally special and different. I don't need to compete with them on their thing. I can be stoked for her that she gets to experience this exotic flavor of individual that is something that she'll never get with me. And then that she'll get also to have me, which is an exotic flavor of individual, unlike anybody else as well. And that's, you know, there's no reason to compare apples to apples, trait for trait, you know, each is its own thing. And in totality, you know, her choice, you know, as far as to date has always been to me and mine, you know, my first choice always been to her. And that's made even more valid actually by the fact that we are able to choose and try other things, you know, like you can tell your buddy, yeah, you're my favorite. It's my favorite restaurant. Like where else have you eaten? Nowhere. Like, all right. I mean, how much does that mean? But if they're like, yeah, man, I've tried every restaurant in this fucking town and you're still the best (laughs) and I still love it the most. And like, that's like, all right, right on. Yeah. You know, and then it, then it really means something because they're free, they're they're unrestricted, and so I think it's really actually deepened our bond and deepened our connection rather than weakened it. That thing that people think is the threat and it's going to diminish the connection is actually strengthened it. The obstacle is the way. How did you process that? Like what, during the two and a half years, you called it hell. Like how did you? Well, <laughs> is that a little hard? Is it? No, it's 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 a uh, it's important. You know, it's important to talk about. It's also important to talk about the struggle because you know, as you're locked in the ego and the ego feels threatened, you know, that sense of identity, who you are, starts to feel threatened, and the insecurities come up. Well, well, maybe she does like someone who's bigger and stronger, and maybe I'm just not strong enough. Maybe I don't fight good enough. Maybe you know, and if it was, she was with a 
you know, physicists, or maybe, maybe I'm just not smart enough and blah, blah, blah. You start playing these games in your own head and that's hell, that's torture. Um, but eventually you can transcend that and, and really move past those feelings and stop playing the comparison and just see her as you living a different life, see her and see her pleasure as something that's an end goal in and of itself, whatever's going to make her the happiest, remove the priority of yourself in this relationship say hey whatever's going to make you the happiest you want to go experience that great you know and then uh, you know get the same in return and you just start to pattern that new model understand that love isn't possessing or owning somebody love is hoping that that person can experience the most that they possibly can out of life and if you both have that then that's real love that's clean love damn and then you did something happen after two and a half years no, it was, it was gradual, but you know, I, I would say like if we're on the needle and it started off in stark hell, you know, with moments of, wow, this is amazing. Cause obviously there has to be these carrots that keep you going through these little blissful moments. But you know, that, that lever just kind of started to move from hell and then more towards heaven. And that whole process is there. I don't think the needle is all the way pinned down on, I never have any struggles. I never worry about anything. I mean, there's still triggers that happen for both of us, but the majority of our time is blissful and the pain is severely diminished. It's one of the reasons, you know, that I was ready to propose to her because we made it through such incredible challenges together and come out the other side and it's really done nothing but strengthen our bond. So it's been a really beautiful personal journey, transcending the norms and, you know, kind of carving our own path. I think of it also when you hire people too. Like mm -hmm. a lot of people are like, I got to control this person. I got to like, make sure they do this. It's like, no, just l treat them really damn well. And they'll yeah. want to stay with you. Totally. And that's what I noticed with our company. And I'm guessing the same with yours, like treat people amazingly well. I never really as, as well, maybe equated that to your relationship to an exact extent where it's like, Hey, let them do exactly what they want. Help them be as happy as possible. And if it's with you, you know, they'll want to come back and keep eating at that restaurant. Yeah. The law of reciprocity will generally hold. You know, and it's something that we innately feel when someone's doing something great for us, that creates a gratitude response. And then that gratitude response makes us want to do the same for them. And then you get this mutual gratitude feedback rather than this negative resentment cycle of death where, oh, this person restricted me in this plate, made me feel bad here. Well, I'm going to, you know, hook their attention, make them feel bad there. And you get in this resentment cycle. It's the opposite. It's this, this kind of gratitude cycle, like, holy shit, they let me have the most amazing experience of, you know, possible. And they weren't even involved. Like, that's fucking awesome. I'm so grateful. I have so much love for them. I'm going to create that situation, allow them to have that situation themselves. And then, then, then the gratitude starts passing back and forth and you're on the opposite side of that coin. What's the trigger for you now? What sets you off? You said you, you still get triggered. I felt like when she was with somebody else that she lost kind of lost the priority and concern for you know, for me, you know, basically like, oh man, she must just be so into this guy that she doesn't even think about me anymore. You know, and, and that's again, this, this insecurity, like, cause obviously when something is new and novel, that's kind of a natural thing that happens. Like if you're experiencing something with someone you hardly ever get to see and it's rare, you know, you do kind of put your attention to that. Cool. So what really was just her experiencing something new and being excited, I decided to take that as oh man, she doesn't care about me anymore. She's just all into, into her other guy and oh, woe is me. And I threw a little fucking pity party for a moment, you know, while that was happening and not reflecting the actual, the actual facts were, which is, you know, 
it's the same thing. Like you experience that new thing. It's something that's rare. You know, it's like hanging out with a buddy that you hadn't seen in a long time. Like you're not texting your normal best friend that you see all the time. They'll get it. They'll be like, oh yeah, he's hanging with his buddy that's just came into town. You know, like I don't expect him to be hollering at me, hitting me up. But we have these stories that we tell ourselves in a relationship that we start creating. And so I I think the last thing that I can remember is just getting trapped in one of those stories. Like feeling like I she needed to show me that I was important, you know, rather than just fully just enjoy yourself and understand that, you know, yeah, of course, she, she's got a limited time with her guy and why not enjoy it to the fullest? You know, it doesn't mean she loves me less that she's not texting me every, you know, hour or whatever. How did you get through that? Did she finally like text you or did you finally just be like, Hey, did you get to that realization? Or? Well, it's just a recognition of what is truth and what is ego. Like what is, what is yourself trying to take offense and what is the actual reflection of reality? You know, and, and both one of them was my story that was making me feel bad was she's so enthralled with her other guy that she doesn't care about me anymore. Truth being, it's just something new. She hadn't got to see him in a while and she's just in the moment enjoying that experience. Doesn't have any bearing on how she feels about me, nor do I need her to validate me in that moment. So, and it was just a kind of recognition like, okay, here's my ego being triggered. It's a move to be the observer of your emotions. And I think that's probably the biggest tool. Like instead of being wrapped up as the identity that's taking offense, observing yourself as someone having the identity that's taking offense and then saying, okay, is that really accurate? Or is perhaps another, um, another circumstance more reflective of reality and then backing yourself out of your identity and your ego and then uh, reassessing and then backing yourself in with a higher accordance to truth. It's interesting because you got me reflecting on, I'm like, oh, does Aubrey ever get jealous, right? Like of somebody who has more money or, and it's like, yeah. And I love what you actually were saying about it. Mm -hmm. It's like, step outside yourself and just reflect on like, all right, well, in this situation, am I making up a story that's not necessarily true? And how do I want to respond to this situation? That's really powerful. Be the observer. Well, it, with the girl I'm seeing now, I started making up stories. I'm like, you want to be in a relationship and you want this and you want this. And then one day we talked about it. She's like, I don't want any of those things. You're making up a story about it. <laughs> I was like, really? She's like, yeah, I'm happy where things are right now. And I was like, oh, I'll stop projecting things that I'm assuming about you. Yep who is Aubrey Marcus and how did you get to break so many rules and just become this person that you are today in your journey? Once you have this idea that, you know, you're not going to just accept the story that, you know, someone else says, you know, and that society is carved out, it applies to all things. And I think I learned that in a variety of ways from the start. First of all, my parents always, you know, had me question as many ideas and as many thoughts as I could you know, and growing up largely in Texas, particularly for high school, there was a strong, you know, Christian religious kind of bent towards a lot of the people who I was encountering. And then for me, taking a real fresh look at that and saying like, all right, what of this makes sense? What of this doesn't make sense? You know, I think that was probably the first time I really recall, you know, deviating from the norm where I had a lot of friends who were, you know, in this kind of traditional religious model and being like, nah, that just doesn't make sense to me. And then they would invite me on these church ski trips and shit like that. And they'd be like doing their little Bible study thing. And I'd be the annoying person in the back, like, but that doesn't make sense because of this, like explain this to me. And eventually they stopped inviting me because that, that inquiry, that logical inquiry of does this make sense? How is this going to help me? You know, this kind of practical idea I think a lot of institutions don't like to have those questions asked. It's not just religious, it's moral, it's social, it's all of these things. They just, 
you know, here, accept the, accept the status quo and don't ask any questions where I just had a different model. So I applied that from religion to spirituality, to sexuality, to, you know, really everything, even in business, you know, where it's like, I really take a fresh look at things and I make sure that it makes sense. And it doesn't mean I have to break every norm. Some of them are great. You know, some of the traditions and some of the things really make a lot of sense. And the ones that don't, don't. And I just make my, make my choices from there. Like getting engaged or like following, like at stoplights. Yeah. Like yeah. Right. <laughs> but I, again, like if I'm, at a, if I'm at a stoplight and there's like literally, I can see both sides of the road. Like there's one on William Cannon as I'm coming on William Cannon to Southwest Parkway. And if it's like nighttime and I know that there would be headlights and there's nobody there and I'm at that stoplight, I'm not stopping. So like, you break some rules once in a while. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's like rules are, rules are very good at keeping like, non-sentient beings in line but when you can really transcend the necessity for that and make really sound judgments then i think you know you can look at the rules and say all right should i follow this or should i not follow this does it make sense you know or does it not is it going to hurt anybody if i don't follow it and that's ultimately my own moral code like will this help or will this hurt myself or the game board or the you know the other people playing the game yeah. And if it's not going to hurt me, the game board, which, you know, like the environment, for example, which collectively hurts everybody, if it's not going to hurt myself, the game board or the other players, fuck yeah, I'm in. I go for it. What What is someone that everyone that's listening today could do to break some rules or at least start evaluating it? You know, start looking at what things, where you've told yourself no. Like think of yourself like the character in the most amazing video game that you've ever just downloaded, right? And you're the avatar, you're the player in that video game, right? And so you're looking at like, man, this is a fucking amazing world and game board. Like what buttons have you been afraid to press and why? Like why, what buttons have you been afraid to press and why have you been afraid to press them? Has it been because someone has told you those? Have you really done the research? Have you talked to people who've pressed those buttons? Is it going to hurt anybody? Like reassess all of your no's and then figure out like, all right, maybe I can start squeezing in a few yeses and see what, you know, see what makes sense look where your taboos are look where you're just accepting things for momentum's sake or your parents sake or the things that your social group says and say do i really want to follow that or do i want to explore the other side and just give yourself permission can i really not be that or can i actually go and do those things like have a larger show or have a larger uh, audience on youtube or whatever it is yeah. that i'm trying to accomplish where are you now with the journey of where aubrey marcus is in life well i'm always learning i like the analogy of the swordsmith who has a has a sword and he takes it out of the fire and he hammers it and it's pretty sharp and it knows it can, you know, cut some, cut down some enemies. It's a pretty good sword, but he looks at it and he's like, yeah, if I stuck this back in the fire, melted it back down, took it back out, refolded it and rehammered it, it'd be even sharper. And I'm constantly in that process where I'll pull it out, you know, and I'll use it and I'll do some things and I'll look at it and I'll say, all right, here's still some defects in the steel. Here's, here's some areas that I can work. So, you know, I'll thrust myself back in the fire and go through another, you know, go through another round through the forge and can be very painful and challenging. But every time, you know, as I pull the sword out and I, you know, it becomes a little bit stronger and it becomes a little bit better. So, for me, I'm kind of constantly in that process and have seen the benefits and results of that. What am I going to do with that sword? And to me, you know, I've really became clear, you know, down in South America with some of my spiritual practices that my goal could be summed up in the, in the words that they said, which was in Spanish, para el bien de todos, for the good of all. So how can I use my sword to have the most dramatic 
impact for the good of all, myself included. You know, I don't find the this need to pretend that I'm completely selfless. You know, I think that's a, that's a myth. No one's going to be completely selfish. So how can I help myself and the world to the maximum capacity? Um, focusing not on the world to my own detriment, nor on myself to the world's detriment, finding that balance between self and, um, and the collective and doing the greatest good possible. One thing you were mentioning earlier with the sword, and I love that analogy. How do you figure out what to work on, what to improve? Right. So like for me yeah. lately, uh, two weeks ago, I was out with some friends. I think we were at dinner and they're like, I, I was 15 minutes late uh, to the dinner because I was, we were, inter- I was interviewing someone for the company and it was a company dinner. And I got there and I was like, well, why don't you just start eating? And they're like, well, we were waiting for you. And I was like, you saw where I was. They're like, yeah, but we waited for you. And it, it made me remind me of when my, when I was a kid, my dad, my dad used to excuse when he was late. He's like, oh, you know, you could have just been inside. Don't worry about it. And, um, like, yeah, you're always kind of a few minutes late that's not what I want my friends or the people I work with to ever think about with me. Mm-hmm. So I've been doing a hundred dollar challenge where if I'm even late by a minute, I donate to a hundred dollars to the charity of their choice. Cool. And in like four days, I've done $400 <laughs> <laughs> and whatever charity they want. One did, I did one for his kid's college fund. I've done uh, was it? Uh, uh, Animal Alliance. I've done Austin Pets Alive, done an Andy Roddick foundation, but the, it was something that like, oh, I identified a thing I wanted to work on. So how do you identify what things to improve for yourself? Yeah, I figure out where I'm scared and where it hurts. So anytime somebody points out an insecurity or I feel insecure, or I feel my ego get ruffled, it's an opportunity for me to say, all right, here's a painful spot. Let's go through the other side of that and see if I can fix it. Where do I have fear? I really don't like bugs very much. And so if I see like a cockroach or a cricket on the ground, I'll go survey my options. But it's a cockroach or a cricket. It's not going to harm me, right? So really I could just grab it with my hand and let it outside, but I'm afraid of that. And it ter- it kind of like scares me. It makes me feel all constricted and icky. So I'll look at that and be like, man, I got to get over that. There's some limitation, even though it's trivial, there's some limitation placed on my brain where I'm saying I can't accurately assess danger and I allow fear to over to supersede and over exceed the amount of danger that's actually there. And if I allow that to happen in this small circumstance, perhaps I can allow this I'm allowing this to happen in a larger circumstance. So that's something I need to work on. So I'll take that opportunity to work on it in the micro, knowing that it'll help me work on it in the macro when fears of like fear of getting cancer or fear of dying comes up. It's a little bit more, you know, ability and skills that I've learned to put in the bank of just overcoming fears and, uh, and making sure that fear is exactly in line with danger because that's where we want it. We don't want it to have more fear than there is actual danger or less fear than there is actual danger. We want it to be equivalent to the amount of danger that's there. And I think fear is one of those things that, you know, if you don't check it, it can really run rampant and ruin your life. A lot of the things that you, you find out about yourself, I think you've mentioned in your shows and a lot of news, you started doing DMT and some of these, these spiritual mm-hmm. trips like ayahuasca, and, yep. which is now becoming the norm. It's so amazing. Right. Like, you know, you started talking about this years ago and I remember a friend of mine was cooking just meat and vegetables. I'm like, do you want any, do you want any, pro, do you want any uh, gluten or anything? He's like, no, I eat, I eat this thing called paleo. This was in 2006. Yeah. And then, you know, years later it became norm. And now in ayahuasca, I think that's becoming a norm. I guess one thing I was thinking about as you've gone through the fears you want to identify or the places that you're, you want to work on, like what things have you taken out of uh, some of these trips? Like what changes in your life or in your business? All the things like this is, this has really been, this, that's been my primary forge right? Like I'd say open relationship and psychedelics have been the two things that have challenged me the most and put me face to face with, you know, the, the most difficult things for me, for me to work on all of my different, you know, lack of awareness about where my ego was, where my selfish tendencies were, where 
Um, I was self-sabotaging myself where I wasn't showing myself enough love, where I was giving myself too much permission, where I was all of these issues, you know, by shifting your perspective a little bit, you can come face to face with. And it's in many cases, you know, a trial by fire, especially if you're talking ayahuasca, like it's, it'll put you face to face with a lot of your gnarliest shit and give you an opportunity to decide what you want to do. Are you going to run from it? Cause it's just going to chase you down like a grizzly bear and knock you over and eat you asshole first. If you do, <laughs> you know, eventually there's no running from your fears. So, you know, can you face it and can you overcome it and can you do it with love? And, um, and that's really the lessons that you learn from these is, you know, it's an accurate mirror. It's an accurate way to, you know, reflect upon yourself and understand, you know, what you're doing, where it's coming from, how you can shift that. And then, um, it can create really lasting, lasting change. Like, you know, in your example about being late, you know, what you're doing is you're, you know, you're kind of Pavlovian style training yourself not to be late, which is effective. It'll work. But perhaps if you ask that same question on a psychedelic, like a boga, it would spiral you off into the root cause of what makes you think that it's okay for you to be late. And maybe there's a deeper issue about, you know, self-importance versus the importance of other people that it would, Iboga would, you know, could track it all the way back to the root. And then you could make some kind of core adjustment, just moving that little dial at the center of the clock and shift that dial a little bit. And then all of a sudden, you know, the, the effects that you're seeing manifest, which is you being late, all of that clears up. It's really just a potent tool to get to the root of the issue. What if someone says, I don't really like doing drugs. Is there another way of approaching those problems or Because it's like, I would like to go to the root. I don't know yeah. if I want to go puke in Peru in a, in, sure. a, in a hut, but maybe that is the answer. Any kind of, and I, that's where I think reading the book, um, Stealing Fire, again, I'm plugging this book a lot, but because it's not only talks about psychedelics, it talks about all of the other ways. For example, holotropic or shamanic breathing. You don't like doing drugs? Cool. You know, there's ways to hyper oxygenate the body and transcend normal thought patterns and actually have massive catharsis and insight without ingesting anything but more air than usual. You know, so that's usually a pretty safe place for people to try like, all right, you're afraid of breathing too much. All right. So that's not a drug. It's just breathing. Like I can do that. Or maybe a flotation tank. Like you're not putting anything in your body. All you're doing is going and sitting in warm water and isolating your senses and allowing your brain, you know, those normal prefrontal activities to calm down and you allow to you allow yourself to access you know higher states of thinking maybe it's ecstatic dance you know which is a practice that i really like where it's it's more of a conscious form of dance where you're consciously removing all limitation of expression and just trying to get in that kind of trance state where it's just music and body communicating and your mind is slowed down and out of the way look up ecstatic dance. I mean, that's really the the moniker that you want to search for and just see who's providing that because then you'll be around other people who a lot of times it's blindfolded. It doesn't have to be, um, but it just really allows you to completely release this performance aspect of the dance, which is what do people think? If I move my hips this way, does yeah. it make me gay? You know, like all yeah. of these thoughts that you have that really limit you from moving in the way that you probably would if you were a kid that wasn't getting judged. Well, it's funny that you say that two things that came to mind is one at gay bars. I love dancing at gay bars, even though I'm not gay. It's just, I don't care what you think. I'm not trying to hook up with you. Compare that to straight bars. I'm like, well, I probably have to have a drink or two to get like comfortable here. Yeah, exactly. For gay bars, like well, they buy me drinks. They're really <laughs> nice to me and I can dance freely, which is, it's interesting. Like how do I transcend and take that to regular dancing? And, and the other thing uh, you got me reflecting on was, I don't know if it's called ecstatic dance, but I went to Michael Ellsberg 
but he encouraged me to go to, I think it was called five senses dancing. Mm -hmm. It might've been ecstatic dancing. And so he encouraged me to do it where it was in a room. It was over in South Austin and they played music and it was like two to three hours. We're just dancing and there was no judgment. And in that moment, I'm just like, it's very weird to do it without any pressure. One thing that you got me kind of wondering is like, you're very spiritual and you're new age, but you're also like a fucking warrior and you right. do UFC. And I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you said you've killed someone, <laughs> right? If you're like, hey, I stabbed someone in the neck because he was fucking with me. And I'm like, yeah, I can see Aubrey doing that. So it's- I it's, haven't. <laughs> people haven't. I haven't killed anybody. I guess where's that balance, right? Because I think on one hand, I hear new age frou-frou people and I'm like, ugh, shut the fuck up. But you've kind of balanced that really interestingly with this kind of machismo, like- I'm also, you know, self-assured and tough and, and a fighter, which almost seems opposite to this, you know, kind of hippy dippy lifestyle that I've seen of people who are like, get in your mind and let's meditate together. Yeah, it is. And I, and I think both sides are bullshit. I think the, the person who's just a fighter, but says, oh yeah, fuck all that spiritual bullshit. I don't need it to be that I'm tough, you know, or the person's like, you don't ever need to fight, you know, just see abundance in everything. You know, both sides are nonsense. Right. <laughs> and I think we used to have an understanding of that. There used to be the idea of the warrior poet. And this was a kind of a concept that I latched onto a, a long time ago, this idea that Socrates was the greatest thinker of all time, but you read reports of him in battle and he was one of the most ferocious warriors. Miyamoto Musashi, the greatest swordsman who ever lived, was also in his spare time, you know, painting calligraphy and, and writing and meditating in his garden. And, and this idea of being a full, robust human experiencing both sides, I think that's our birthright. And I think all too often we get stuck in one side or the other. We see it in politics. You're liberal or conservative. Fucking neither. Like, why don't you choose a little bit of both? Why don't you just figure out what makes sense instead of just putting yourself in a single archetype, identifying with that archetype and just accepting, you know, the basic structure that comes along with that label. You know, what religion are you? Like, I don't fucking know. I have Christian beliefs, Buddhist beliefs, Muslim beliefs, all of these, everything. Oh, I take all of the best of what is there and I express that, you know, and, and I think that's really the the way to live the richest and the happiest is to not abide by any of these labels, but see what makes sense and go full force for that. How do you love yourself? You have to, again, you have to shed a lot of the conditioning and a lot of the condition you've received from parents in the world that is, you know, we'll love you if, we'll love you if you perform this way, if you get those good grades, if you behave like a good little boy or a good little girl, we'll love you then, right? Rather than we'll love you always. And here's some different paths that you can choose that will benefit or, or you know, or not. There's so much judgment and so much conditional love in our world and that's just the nature of things. And so we internalize that. And so we love ourselves if. And that standard gets higher and higher and harder to achieve, especially as, you know, we look at other people and fantasize that they're doing something perfect, that, you know, this person is doing everything perfectly, this person. So I'm not that person. So I'm not worthy of love, you know, because I'm not exceeding in the way that I should. So you internalize this. I should love myself if, and that's bullshit. You should love yourself always and then strive for the most that you can do. But love should be the default place that you live. Because if you don't love yourself, then you won't feel like you deserve all of the things that you're trying to manifest. And if you don't feel like you deserve it, you're going to sabotage yourself. You're going to prevent yourself from achieving it. So self-love is just a, a massive cornerstone. And we all have to realize that none of us are perfect. We all fuck up. We're all going to make a billion mistakes. And that doesn't mean that we aren't worthy of love. We're all worthy of love. And we're all learning and you have to start with that in order to make any meaningful progress. What things have you been doing in terms of spirituality and, and uh, self-discovery and so forth? What have you stopped doing? I'm like, 
Does Aubrey not do, what drugs is he not doing anymore? Well, some things have like broken for me. Like alcohol's broken. Like I would still drink probably a lot more if it still worked like it used to, but it just doesn't work like it used to. It doesn't give me the same kind of euphoria that I used to have, nor do I need it to feel less inhibited anymore either. So it kind of goes hand in hand. So I've really, as much as I've enjoyed drinking throughout my life, I've really toned that down a lot because it just doesn't really serve me. I feel the negative, you know, deleterious effects on my body, but I don't get the reward that I used to get from it. That kind of really sociable euphoric feeling that used to accompany that. I think that's the same case with even with like shitty food. I used to really enjoy that experience a lot more, but now, you know, I've had so many French fries and fucking covered, smothered in shitty chili and whatever else, whatever kind of bad food. I was never really like a Twinkies kind of guy. I was a big cookie guy. You know, I'd eat the shit out of a bunch of chocolate chip cookies. And I think for me, like even experiencing that kind of culinary pleasure, those, pleasure of the of those senses i still love great food but i don't find myself drawn to these super indulgent you know meals anymore because i'm weighing accurately how it makes me feel and how it affects my performance and all of these other things that i love um as well so i've kind of toned down that necessity i mean the one thing that um that's stronger than ever probably is still sex like that. That still works. Like that still, that still is great. Um, and then some of the psychedelics, you know, I think, uh, I'm just finding the right balance of when to experience those, but trying to just get to a baseline of just genuine happiness of where I'm at on like the baseline level, that's become really the priority. So these, this kind of peak and Valley ecstasy and hangover, you know, feeling great, feeling shitty, you know, amazing meal, totally full and stuffed after I'm done. I've really tried to level that out and just kind of move my baseline a lot higher. And that's become the the highest priority for me at this point. Dude, I love that. I didn't drink for January, February. I think mm-hmm. it was like, I don't know, 60, 75 days. And then this one weekend, like a few, about a month ago, I went fucking off the wall for the whole weekend. <laughs> and it was just a rager, uh-huh. a bender, I don't know, whatever you want to call it. Uh, mom, work. Yeah. Uh, it's like mom, if you're listening, uh, no. <laughs> I was at synagogue on Sunday. Don't worry. No. And, uh, then I went on Monday to talk to the therapist to him about it. And I was already, I was still like recovering because I was still pretty hungover. And he's like, well, yeah, because in the pendulum, you went so far to the left that the only way for you to find that balance was to go all the way to the right. And it was kind of an interesting kind of way that he framed it for me where it's like, I don't want that. Right. Yeah. Like, I think it's good to go extremes at times, but I was like, well, how do I get a balance around my baseline? Is it then going to be happier in general? So I don't need to not drink ever. And then have to have a weekend bender because I finally can now accept that drinking. Mm. And people do that with diets all the time. Yeah. Like they'll starve themselves and then just binge, you know, and I think that's, uh, that's a pattern that I think is healthy to get out of. You know, I think you gotta be constantly working on your baseline and then go every once in a while and go to shoot the moon. Like it's all right to have that bender every once in a while, see what state that you can achieve. See if you can achieve that, that moment where you're just standing on a speaker howling at the moon and your whole body is electrified from the cells in your toes to the top of your head. Like, yeah, go for it. Try it. You know, if you can get there fucking great, maybe it was worth it, but maybe it wasn't worth it. Maybe you never got that. Maybe you just got hung over and you feel like shit. So like, make sure that, you know, you're not burning the house down to bake a loaf of bread. Like make sure that, you know, what you're trying to do is, is really worth it. One of the things you said earlier that really uh, resonated with me as well as repercussions and with drinking, especially after I started, I went back to drinking. What are the repercussions of these actions? 
right? So with drinking, I was, I was at an event about a, three weeks ago and I was starting to drink and I was like, oh, if I have more drinks, I'm not going to remember these conversations and I really want to remember it. Yeah. And it was me thinking about the next day or the next, at that night, I was like, oh, I want to remember it. So I stopped drinking. And it was actually just putting a little bit further ahead, like a day ahead or a week ahead and how like the food or the drinks or the people or the activities uh, will impair that or not. Mm-hmm. But the baseline of happiness, you said yours has gotten higher. Mm-hmm. It's Way gotten higher. higher. Way higher. What's been changing to, to increase that? Because I, I want to get mine up. Yeah. It sounds like an erectile dysfunction. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so the identity would be Aubrey Marcus is, all right, so he's uh you know, strong in the gym or whatever. He's owns on it. He's, um, has this girlfriend named Whitney. He's got all of these attributes and these things. Great sexually too. (laughs) Amazing. I've seen this. Great. See the videos. (laughs) He's, he's all of these things. And when you identify as all of those things, then anything that's a threat to on it becomes a threat to you. Anything that's a threat to your girl, you know, your relationship becomes a threat to you. Anything that's a threat to, you know, your physical prowess becomes a threat to you. And, and so you're constantly looking as if all of these monsters are about to eat you when really there may be, you know, maybe they're a threat to your identity, but your identity can shift and change and you can remain whole. You know, if, if all of the lawyers in California got together and tried, decided to take on it out, on it would be removed from my current identity but you know what i would be okay i'd figure something else out i'd make something else happen and it would be all right it wouldn't be the end of the world it wouldn't be the end of my life and and i think that's important to remember like it's fine to be in your identity and be proud of the things you've accomplished but that's not you you are the person behind that you're the the player behind the avatar who's creating all of these things you know you're the force of consciousness itself and so i think that recognition that i'm not just the identity i'm the player playing the identity that's the huge step that really allowed me to level up my happiness and reduce stress in a dramatic way dude that's awesome well that was a drug trip i hope you enjoyed it as much as i did sharing it with you go give aubrey some love at aubrey marcus on twitter or instagram and check out his company on it If you love this episode, go tell one friend that you love them. Be like, yo, bro, let's go make some falafels together. (laughs) Number two, I love feedback on how to improve these shows. Hit me up on Twitter. It's at Noah Kagan, N-O-A-H-K-A-G-A-N. Have a special day. What's your favorite condiment? Uh